0: And, Father, we have just raised our voices in acknowledging your holiness and in saying, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. We just pray that our hearts might be thrilled within us as we think in terms of who you are and the marvelous provision that you've made for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Grant to us tonight that we might learn more of this matter of of discipleship and the wonderful privilege that we have, the wonderful joy in simply knowing that relationship with you by your Holy Spirit. We just praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are studying presently the subject of discipleship. We've already studied it from the standpoint of the Gospels, and now we're moving ahead with studying this concept in the book of Acts. There will be a third part to this series that we will be presenting later, and that has to do with discipleship in a practical framework. That is, what are some of the mechanics? Uh, What can we actually do? How can we actually get involved in discipling others? So that is uh, something yet to come. But we're laying the foundation right now by looking at uh, the book of Acts, having looked already at the Gospels and the way that Christ discipled his own men and the training of the Twelve. Now we are talking about how those 12 went out and discipled others. And we, uh, in our last study, uh, which uh, has been interrupted because of the uh, uh, fact that we were flat on our back for a couple of weeks here... uh, we had the, the sort of an introductory uh, series, just an introductory matter to this whole uh, matter of the disciples' ministry and how that ministry from God's viewpoint was marked by success. We saw there were six features. Uh, there first of all was the preparation of the disciples. There was the preaching of the disciples. There was the purity of the church. There was the preconditioning of the people. There was the propagation of the Word of God, and there was the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the the point that we tried to stress was this, that those same things are also present in the church today. There's nothing changed. The phenomenal results, the fact that the entire community was stirred as a result of the ministry of these disciples, has not changed one bit. The whole community can be stirred today if God's people have these features that made up divine viewpoint success in the book of Acts. And so there's no reason today that the church has to be powerless. There's no reason today that we have to flounder. There's no reason today that we have to wonder if we can achieve success from God's viewpoint. Now, I guess the problem that we have is that we get hung up on the matter of success. And we think of success purely in terms of numbers, uh, and there were numbers in the book of Acts as we saw it, but the numbers were a result, a result of the ministry, not uh, the goal of the ministry. There never was a mass campaign to reach 3,000 people, but the thousands were reached simply because when everything is in order, when people's hearts are right with God, when they understand doctrine. And they are willing to teach that doctrine to others, uh, committing that to faithful men who will be able to teach others to teach others and so on. There is a multiplication process. Sometimes there is a spurt of evangelism that comes as a result. But the whole thing boils down to the fact that it's the heart that has to be right first. And uh, it's, it's something we've said time and time again and we repeat because we never want you to forget it. And that is the goal that we have here at Valley Church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is the goal, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and the work of the ministry will be accomplished when the saint, as the saints are equipped. But if we have our goal to reach a thousand people, then that will be an artificial thing. What we want to do is be involved in what God wants us to do, simply being vessels through which the Holy Spirit can flow and work. Now we suggested to you that we want to spend some time then studying the relationship of the disciples' ministry to various aspects of, uh, of what is taught in the book of Acts. Things like stewardship and, and how that related to discipleship and uh, the matter of, of uh, uh, service and how that relates to discipleship and all of those things. So we want to cover these things. But the very first that we want to cover is the relationship of the disciples' ministry to the ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to do a study on pneumatology through Scripture. Uh, That is another study we could do. And uh, believe me, it's very tempting to just go on a study of pneumatology and understand uh, from uh, Genesis to, to Revelation all of the aspects of the ministry of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, of course, was present in creation, and the Spirit of God will be very present in the millennium. And we could go all the way from creation to the millennium, and we could t- study how the Spirit of God was used in various ages, how He has ministered uh, in the church age. We could talk about uh, many, many doctrines that relate to the Spirit of God. That's not our purpose. And so uh, don't, I hope you're not going to be disappointed But what we merely want to do is show how intricately related the ministry of the Spirit of God was to the disciples' ministry and their ministry of discipleship. How was the Spirit of God involved in a discipleship ministry with these men? Now, to study this, uh, we want to concentrate our attention on the happenings of two chapters in the book of Acts. Just Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 with some supportive references and then just a little coda at the end uh, to kind of uh, sum the thing up to show how the Spirit of God has worked already in the book of Acts and how he will yet work in the church today. Now, first of all, we have to think in terms of the Spirit of God in regard to the education of the disciples. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, you see... These words, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The former treatise would be the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke, a medical doctor, wrote the book of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts. Now, this is uh, proof enough that he wrote the book of Acts, he wrote it to the same person as he wrote the Gospel of Luke that bears his name. But uh, there's lots of other things. There, of course, is the medical language that uh, is found throughout the book. Uh, even in verse 3, it says, uh, "...to whom uh, also he showed himself alive after his passion." Pa- the word passion there is a strictly a technical medical term, and therefore it identifies the doctor. He's talking in a uh, jargon that is not the uh, ordinary language of the people. He talks about the former treatise, as we've, we've mentioned. He talks about a number of uh, pass in a number of places in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, we see Luke talking in terms of we, we this, we that, we the other. And uh, in terms of the Apostle Paul, and remember he was a traveling companion of Paul, he speaks of himself as being a Gentile. Uh, this the book was written from a Gentile point of view, and so therefore that indicates uh, all of this. So there are many, many other things that are related to this. Uh, one of the things that I think is is almost conclusive uh, uh, in this regard is the the fact that the the language, the the mastery of Greek. Uh, that, uh, that the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts show and the similarity of that Greek indicates that this was a very highly educated individual uh, that had written this particular book. So th- there's all kinds of reasons we give you, but I just want to give that as a background. And notice that he says that he is talking about that which Jesus began both to do and to teach. Remember the, the book of Acts is the fourth historical book of the New Testament. And it is a book that is a continuation of that which happened in the, in the book of Luke, and the book of John, and so on. It's a continuation in the history, in the uh, chronological history. And uh, so he's written that first uh, book, which is the Gospel of Luke. Now, verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now notice how that the, the book of Acts is connected to the gospels from the standpoint of Christ continuing his ministry through his apostles. Now the education then of the apostles, the education of the disciples is a vitally important thing. Really there are four levels of education that these disciples had. If we wanted to simplify it, we would say first of all the time before before the triumphal entry, before the triumphal entry, before Christ came into the city of Jerusalem. Now, that was the lengthy period of time where the disciples spent approximately three, three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, there was the special education crash program in the upper room, in the upper room. That was a very important aspect of the education of the disciples. Then there was after the resurrection post resurrection, there was another time. Remember Christ spent ten days uh, spent forty days with them before the ten days in between uh, the Pentecost and his ascension and so Christ spent forty days this of course was several hours, and of course, before the triumphal entry was uh, about three and a half years. All right, so 40 days. All right, and then the fourth educational process was the 10 days of waiting, waiting for the Spirit of God to come in his power and in his fullness. Now let's just quickly review These four areas, not with any length because we've covered some of that in our earlier study. But the first thing is before the triumphal entry. So let's start with that and let's look at several passages. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. Now remember, we're not talking only about discipleship now. We're talking about the relationship of the Spirit of God to this matter of discipleship. What do we see in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11? Here, of course, was talking about John the Baptist and talking about the baptism of repentance and that which he was involved in. And it says in verse 11 I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now who is he speaking of? He's speaking of Jesus Christ. And some of the men who became the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ were first of all the disciples of John. We covered that in some length in one of our sections where we showed the difference between the discipleship of John and the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these men, some of them, had already heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now one of the things that Christ was prophesied by John the Baptist to to do was that he was going to endue these people with the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now look over at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. (coughs) Excuse me. Luke chapter 11 and let's begin at verse 10, uh, Verse 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? That's a rhetorical question, but uh, it implies, of course, a negative answer. Or if he asks him a fish, will he give uh, for a fish a serpent? Or if he asks an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Now, conclusion. If ye, then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Now, I want to make a, I want to clarify a point here. Let's remember that the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is in the old testament era, at least most of the book, previous to the cross of Jesus Christ, everything that takes place is still taking place. They're still making sacrifices in the temple there's there's still uh, everything is is the following of the law it all has to do with that which had been given through Moses the pharisees the whole scene was all together that which had to do with Moses how was the spirit of god manifest in the old testament the spirit of god came upon men temporarily give me a, give you a, give you an example 13th chapter Judges with uh, Samson. Samson was a man who had unusual strength, but we all, you know, when he's pictured in a children's book, he's pictured as a man of great physique. But you show me a man of great physique who has great, monstrous physical strength who loses that strength when he gets a haircut. His strength was not muscles, his strength was because the Spirit of God. Came upon him, and there were people in the Old Testament that were endued with special power. There was, of course, Elijah and Elisha, and remember that Elijah, Elijah, when he went up in the whirlwind, he was told uh, by, uh, or he told Elisha his servant, he said, he said, "What do you want?" He said, "I want a double portion of your spirit." And he said, all right, if you see me go, then you'll get that. What did he do? He asked. What happened? He got what he asked for. In fact, there are recorded twice as many miracles by Elisha than there were by Elijah. And so he asked, and he got what he asked for. Now, this was something that, that was rare in the Old Testament. But the Spirit of God came upon men, endued them with power for special service. The Spirit of God came upon Daniel; and he understood dreams. The Spirit of God came upon various of the prophets, and they were able to prophesy. And uh, so, the Spirit of God was very active. But it was a come and go process. The spirit of God would come to endue a man with power. The spirit of God could leave, and that's why David in the Old Testament had to say, uh, "Don't let your spirit depart from me," because the Spirit of God would depart. There was no permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God in the individual's life. Now Christ in the New Testament revealed something that apparently was not generally known in the Old Testament, but apparently was true. And that was that we have a gracious Heavenly Father. And anyone who would have been willing to simply ask for the power of God's Holy Spirit into a cleansed life, ...that the Holy Spirit would endue them with that power. If your Heavenly Father is anything like an earthly father... ...and if you were to ask Him for His power in your life... ...do you think He would turn you down? That's what Christ is saying to these disciples. In other words, it's the Spirit of God is and always has been available to people. At least in measure. In some measure. And there's no reason for you to even now to be powerless fascinating thing is that apparently the disciples didn't get the hint. And finally, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, one day Christ said to them, now I'm going to be going away. And he breathed on them and he said, receive ye the spirit. They still hadn't asked, but they received the spirit from him. Why? Well, I'll tell you, it's a a real key thing. There is no way that those disciples could have been in one accord with one mind for ten whole days if they did not have the power of the Spirit of God in their life. You show me any group of 120 people. I don't care where they are. And you put them into close quarters for ten days and just see if they're all walking in the Spirit at the end of that time. Now that's even where we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. we got a problem. But these fellows did not even have that. And you see, what would happen on the day of Pentecost was that the Spirit of God would come to permanently indwell believers and make available the filling of the Spirit for any individual that was cleansed at any point of time. This was that which was available after Pentecost. It was available, but available in a different way, even in Old Testament days. And I I venture to say that that these disciples missed a very important point, because there are a lot of things that came up in the book Uh, In the in the gospel accounts of their lives, that might have been different, had they simply obeyed what Christ said, and simply asked for what Christ had to offer. Remember, John had already told them that that's what he'd come to do, and he told them, "Ask." All right. Now, if you look at John chapter seven, you see something a little further about the this particular area of their preparation in regard to the Spirit of God. John chapter seven. Verses 37 through 39. This was, of course, after the Feast of the Tabernacles, or at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now the word there for heart is literally the the, the innermost being. The, uh, the the Greeks thought of it as being in the bowels area, out of out of the bowels of the individual, and it's but it's out out of the innermost being will flow the rivers of living water. But now notice here's John's editorial comment. John now writing this gospel. About uh, 70, 80 A.D., uh, after Christ has been gone, the end of the, uh, the, end of the, the uh, first century is coming about, and uh, he has been already a prisoner, and he's come back, and uh, he's suffered for the name of Christ, and now he is writing a treatise for the church, and he, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, makes a comment, a comment that was not a part of Christ's narrative, but rather is a part of John's telling of it, uh, and hindsight is in his favor as well. What does he say? This spoke he, what? That out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this spoke he of the Spirit, whom they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now the thing that we have to keep in mind is this, that the Spirit of God is a permanent indwelling person so that the, he can, can live his life through us. And that really is what living a Christian life is all about. The Spirit of God indwelling us. The Spirit of God hopefully controlling us. The word filled, the idea of being filled with the Spirit is the idea of the control of the Spirit. Spirit that the Holy Spirit in controlling us can then reproduce the life of Christ in these feeble mortal bodies of ours. And as we yield to His control, that's exactly what happens. He reproduces the life of Christ through us. But the Spirit of God was not yet at this time given. Christ was promising that if they would believe on him, that this was something that would take place. All right. Now, those three passages then give to us just a little perspective on the idea of the Spirit of God in those three and a half years of ministry. Now, the second area is in the upper room, in the upper room, and, uh, We want to turn to that passage of Scripture. John recorded it very clearly for us, gave us a lot of detailed account, beginning in John chapter 13. Let's divide this into two ways. Let's talk, first of all, about the deficiency of the disciples. And then let's talk about the dynamic. Christ talked about both. All right? John chapter 13. Look, first of all, at verse 7. Excuse me. Jesus answered and said unto him, that is, unto Peter, "What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter." In other words, John or uh, John is saying here that Simon Peter was told by the Lord that there was an area of ministry in which he was deficient, something at this point that he had a hard time understanding. Now Christ had come to him and he said, "I want to wash your feet." And, uh, and Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And so the Lord said, Lord, uh, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then uh, you are, uh, you're not going to have any part with me. But before he said that, he said, what I do thou knowest not now. You don't understand what I am doing in washing the feet. You don't understand that. But thou shalt know hereafter. And then, verse 9, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said unto him, he that is washed need not except to wash his feet. He that is bathed, literally. The word uh, is uh, uh, luo. Uh, which means to bathe. And the second word wash is nipto, which is to wash or to to simply uh, sponge off or to cleanse in that way. So it, he said he said, he that has been bathed need not accept to uh, have his feet sponged off, but is entirely clean and year clean, but not all of you. That is, there's one that isn't. That, of course, would be Judas. All right, what is he saying to him here? He's saying there is a deficiency. There is an ignorance here. There is something you yet don't understand. Now, how, why didn't he understand it? Well, we'll see in a moment. Let's look at John 16 and verse 12. John 16 and verse 12. Christ said to the disciples, I have yet many things to say unto you. There's some other things I want to teach you. One of them was the lesson he wanted to teach Peter. What does he say? Many things that I, I want to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Now look, nevertheless, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will lead the way into all truth. Literally, that's what it means. Uh, Hadegeo is a word, the word for guide here. It was, it, was used, it was used in the language of the blind. Uh, it was the idea of a person guiding a blind person. It was the idea of, a, of another person leading the way of a blind person. And Christ says, right now you can't understand it. Now let's leave it there for a moment, because we are just talking about the deficiency. The disciples had a certain deficiency that did not give them the ability to grasp certain truth. Now, by the way... It's a very clear thing. The reason is because spiritual truth is grasped only by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. Spirit of God is the only one that can understand spiritual truth. So therefore, the Spirit of God has to be the interpreter in order to, uh, to interpret for us what the Word of God says. And there's a uh, there's a whole process involved in how the Spirit of God accomplishes this. Uh, and basically it means that we have to take things into our mind, but then they have to be acted upon by the Spirit of God so that He can guide us into all truth. And so there is that deficiency. And I can say we can say this on the basis of, of just sound doctrine, that any time a person is not controlled by the Spirit of God, he is in the same condition. There are many things that Christ wants to teach us that he can't teach us under those conditions. We may learn all kinds of things intellectually, but we will not learn the dynamic of the Spirit of God unless we're yielding to his control on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. That's the important thing in regard to this deficiency. Now, secondly then, the dynamic. And this is a many-faceted thing. We won't linger long on it, just looking at several verses. First of all, John chapter 14, verses 12, 16 through 18. Let's look at that. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, he's not mentioning the Spirit of God at this point. But the Spirit of God is inherently in this passage because Christ did what he did, everything he did, he did in the power of the Spirit of God. And we will do great things as well. How? In the power of the Spirit of God. Christ never saw 3,000 converts. you realize that? Peter did. Peter saw 5,000 and then 3,000. Peter saw great converts, greater works than even Christ did. These men accomplished. Now, I'm not talking only about the miracles, though the miracles were, pro- were very present and prevalent in the apostolic age too. But I'm just mentioning, I'm mentioning the number of people converted just as a, as, again, as a result, not as a priority. But Jesus Christ had a very limited ministry. Jesus Christ never left Galilee except to go up into Perea uh, and uh, uh, into Samaria but for the most part his ministry was centered right around one little locale and those of us that uh, recently came back from Israel uh, we we all are amazed really to realize that most of what Christ accomplished he accomplished around the Sea of Galilee and that really is just a puddle that's not even a very good-sized lake That's really a very small area. And yet most of what Christ did was done in that general geographical area. Jesus Christ never went more than than a few miles, really, from his home, his whole life. He had a very limited ministry. But you see, his purpose was accomplished. It was not important how broad his ministry was. The important thing was at the end of his life, he could say, I have accomplished what the Father has sent me to do. Now, that's something important, isn't it? Now, what's really important in life? Well, he that does the will of God abides forever. It's the will of God, first, last, and always, that really is the vital issue. By the way, you can't do the will of God without the fullness of the Spirit of God. And Christ had the fullness of the Spirit of God. He perfectly did the will of God because there was never a time he was out of fellowship. So he didn't waste any time. The whole thing was productive. And in three and a half years he accomplished what, well, if we, allowing for all of the lapsed time that we have to have. You know, we, we couldn't possibly accomplish the will of God uh, in uh, three and a half years because we uh, waste so much time being out of fellowship. You know, really, don't we waste so much time trying to do it in the flesh? Waste so much time trying to do it in our own power, and our own steam? And all those things, as far as God is concerned, are wasted time. That's why we're told to redeem the time and then told how to redeem the time in Ephesians 5. Don't be foolish, as some people are, but rather be wise. Understanding what the will of God is. What's the will of God? Very simple. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the will of God. When the Spirit of God controls your life, then every moment is productive. Very simple matter, but very vital for us. All right, so Christ here is talking about the fact that these men would do greater things. How would they do them? In the power of the Spirit of God. And it involved, of course, the the fact that the Apostle Paul, uh, unlike Jesus Christ, went around the world with the gospel, touched nations with the gospel. Do you realize that... that, uh, that Luis Palau um, or Billy Graham on a given night speak to more people than Jesus Christ saw in all of his lifetime. In fact, with the television and everything else, um, L- Luis Palau, in a Euro- in, say in a South American country and with all the television hookups and everything else, if you counted the number of people that Jesus Christ encountered, During his entire life, even duplicating people, just the number of people over and over again, Luis Palau speaks to more people in one night than all of those accumulated people that Christ saw in three and a half years. The reason is because he really didn't see that many people—five thousand at once. We know the Sermon on the—I mean, the Feeding of the Five Thousand. But you add up a whole bunch of five thousands, and you still don't have the more than 100,000 or 200,000, 300,000 people that some of these men talk to in a given night? Don't you think that just from the standpoint of the number of people exposed to the gospel, that there's a very real sense in which Luis Palau is doing greater works than Jesus Christ? That's what Christ said would happen. Now, if those lives are touched, it's only because Luis is controlled by the Spirit of God see? And as he is controlled by the Spirit of God, then that becomes productive. And I always like to say, if then it is accomplished, if great things are accomplished, who accomplished them? Luis? Oh, no, the Spirit of God. So therefore, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So no one can walk into the presence of God and say, look what I did for you, God. No way. Just doesn't work that way. Relax. Relax. Let the Spirit of God control you. He will accomplish the purpose of God in your life. And the final analysis, God will get the glory. And when God is glorified, we benefit. And so therefore, you're, you'll get your reward. And your reward will be something you really don't deserve. You realize that? We don't earn anything as far as heaven is concerned. Nothing. Never did, never will. Never could. No possibility you can earn a thing. You can't earn heaven by anything you would do for salvation, and you can't earn, it, earn heaven by anything you'd do after salvation. But as the Spirit of God works through you, God is glorified, and the result is that there is, there is something worthwhile accomplished, gold and silver and precious stones. Anything you do in the energy of the flesh is wood, hay, and stubble. All right, now look at verses 16 through 18 then. I will pray the Father, and He will give you, another, and you've seen before that that word another is alas, which means another of the same kind, another comforter, another parakletos. It's the same word that's used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where, Christ says, uh, where it says concerning Christ, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's a parakletos in heaven, operating on our behalf at the right hand of the throne of God, that's Jesus Christ. There's a paracletos on earth, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And here it's talking about that earthly paracletos, the Spirit of God. I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you, how long? Forever. There's the key to the whole thing. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now this would be a stark contrast to the Old Testament ministry of the Spirit of God. The Old Testament ministry of the Spirit of God was that temporary coming of the Spirit of God and in doing with power. Notice, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, seeth him not because he has a dead human spirit, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. Where? With you. He dwells by your side, literally. And shall be where? In you. You see, there's a difference. All of this time, the Spirit of God was present. But the Spirit of God did not indwell permanently the believer. He says this is something that is going to be happening. He will dwell in you. All right? And then, if you look further, chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. These things have I spoken unto you, being present with you. But the Comforter, Paracletos, once again, who is the Holy Spirit, very clearly he says that now, whom the Father will send in my name, which means as my representative, he shall do what? Teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. One of the ministries of the Spirit of God is to represent Jesus Christ. Another ministry of the Spirit of God is to teach you all things, all things that are needed. And thirdly, to bring to remembrance those things that Jesus Christ said. That, of course, was very important as far as the writing of the Gospels is concerned, but even today has a ministry as well. All right? Chapter 15, chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Comforter, who is the Comforter? Paracletos, he's been defined as the Spirit of Truth. He's been despi- defined as the Holy Spirit. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, redefined again, who shall proceed from the Father, he shall testify of me. A fourth thing that the Spirit of God was to do. He was going to testify. The word testify is martyrus martyrus is the word which is simply, uh, the, we get our word martyr from it, but a martyr originally was not one who died for his faith, but one who witnessed. And when one witnessed, sometimes he died for his faith, and so they started using the word martyr. And so, But the word simply means to bear witness, to tell of something that he has experienced or seen. That is what a martyrs is. And then notice what it says. He shall testify of me. Now follow. And ye are also shall bear witness, same word, martyrus because ye have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit will testify of me, and you will work with the Spirit of God in testifying of me. All right, one more passage. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient, it is to your advantage, it is to your profit, for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter, who's the Comforter? It's the Spirit of Truth. It's the Holy Spirit. Paracletos, Will not come unto you. Now, notice that. If Jesus Christ had remained on earth, the Spirit of God would not have come. It was impossible, in some way, for the Spirit of God to carry on... His his particular ministry of permanent indwelling, if Jesus Christ were to be present. Now, that's a mystery. We don't necessarily understand it fully, but Christ said it, so we believe it. He said, if I didn't go away, the Spirit of God could not come. That's all there is to it. All right? So he he would not come. If I go not away, he will not come unto you. But if I depart, then I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove, that is to convict or to rebuke, the world of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You've seen us go through this before. The Spirit of God convicts of these three things. What does he convict of? Of sin. Now, not sins, but one specific sin. What's the sin? Of sin because they believe not on me. The sin of rejecting of Jesus Christ. That is the sin the Holy Spirit convicts of of righteousness because I go unto my Father. The righteousness is the righteous standard shown by Jesus Christ and thus revealed by the Holy Spirit. And that's the second thing. The third thing he'll convict of is of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. That is that the thing that the Holy Spirit will say to people is that you're liable for judgment if you follow Satan because Satan will be judged. Now these are the three things that the Holy Spirit uses to convict people. And on the basis of what I have in Scripture, I do not find any other things that, that the Spirit of God specifically is said to have con- convict people as far as, their, as far as the unbeliever is concerned. In other words, when you're witnessing, you should be cognizant of that. And if you're over here arguing with this guy about some way out doctrine, you're never going to touch him. Because the Spirit of God isn't interested in talking to him about that. Spirit of God is interested in communicating three things. Number one, he's a sinner. And that sin is that he rejected Jesus Christ, God's provision for his salvation. That Jesus Christ has provided a righteous standard, a standard that's absolutely perfect, and anyone who comes short of that standard is absolutely lost. And that lostness is intensified by the fact that Satan went that way of rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ. And thus, he is judged and you will share in his judgment, a judgment that was never intended for you, but a judgment that you will share if you persist in following Satan. Now that's the message of the gospel to the unbeliever. And basically, as you go through the Gospels and go through the Epistles and see everything that was said to unbelievers, you'll see that it was always based on this whole thing. Look at Peter's first two sermons. Look at Stephen's sermons. What do they say? They're communicating this truth. That's the preaching of the Gospel. It takes many forms, but it boils down to the same thing, that the thing the Spirit of God is going going to put his finger on in that individual's life is the fact of his rejection of Jesus Christ, of the righteous standard of God. And by the way, that's always an interesting thing to me because the unbeliever generally has a higher standard for the believer than the believer has for himself. You know that? It's true. He generally does. He understands perfection. And you see, when you talk to him about sin in his life, any kind of sin at all, he'll say, well, you're not perfect. Uh Aha ever have somebody say that to you you're not perfect you see that's a beautiful opening you can say that's right there's only one that was perfect and that was Jesus Christ he provided a righteous standard anybody that comes short of that standard is absolutely condemned they say well then what hope is there Ah, oh, I thought you'd never ask Jesus Christ bore all of your sin on the cross and he has available all of his righteousness transferred to your account to make you perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven not in your own righteousness but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if you persist to go the other way and just say I'll take my chance then that is following Satan and Satan is judged and you will share in that judgment a judgment that was never intended for you. So use it as a witnessing tool. But this again, you see, is a part of the ministry of the Spirit of God. It gives us great edge in our witnessing ministry because we know what the Spirit of God is working on in the life of each individual unbeliever. All right? So those are the three things that are listed for us in regard to the Spirit of God and His work with the unbeliever in this present age. Go on. I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Nevertheless, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. I've already said that the word means to lead the way. It means like leading a blind person through a maze. Guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself. By the way, this is one of the things that, that we, just have to, we just have to grab onto and we have to understand in this day and age. There is so much gobbledygook going on in the name of the Spirit of God, that is just talking about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not witness of Himself. The Spirit of God witnesses of Jesus Christ. What does the Spirit of God do? He can, if He controls our life, He produces through our lives the life of Jesus Christ. That's a ministry of the Spirit of God. But it is not His ministry to make a big thing about His ministry. Understand? He is here for the purpose of not speaking of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. That is, hearing it from the Father, from the Son. And He will show it unto you. And He will show you things to come. And He shall glorify Me... For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And all things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. He's going to show it. Now, incidentally, the word show is A-N-A-N-G-E-L-O. See the word angel in there? Angel is a a messenger. And uh, the word anagelo... Is a word that simply means he'll he'll broadcast it he'll 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 tell it forth it doesn't mean show it in the sense of of pointing out but rather show it in the sense of informing the sense of showing you and so it's not a matter of of him uh, showing us visually but rather it's a matter of him telling us and of course he will tell us through. The Word of God as well. All right, now that then was a part of this education. See what Christ was emphasizing concerning what would happen in the book of Acts? That the the key figure in accomplishing his purpose in the world would be the Holy Spirit working through people. Remember what we said (coughs) we said that the book of Acts should not be called the Acts of the Apostles. And some have suggested that we ought to call it the Acts of the Spirit. But that wouldn't be correct either. Because what the book of Acts gives us is the acts of the Holy Spirit-filled men. It's men accomplishing the work. But it is not them that is doing it, but the Spirit of God doing it through them. So it is Spirit-controlled men that the book of Acts is all about. And by the way, the book of Acts is not finished. It's still being written. How does God work today? Through Spirit-controlled. Filled men and women using men in that broad generic way that is becoming so unpopular Spirit of God working through people like you. God has a great purpose to be accomplished today His purpose has never changed He wants the unbeliever to come to a saving knowledge of Christ He wants the believer to live a life of victory he wants each one of us to be able to produce that which will bring glory to God throughout the countless ages of eternity. He has made all of the provision necessary to accomplish this. We'll get right back to it again. If we're carnal, if there's willful known sin in our life, and we're under the control of our old sin nature. We're under, under the control of our flesh. And under the control of the old sin nature, the individual produces nothing that will bring praise to God. Nothing. But when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the cleansed vessel, because the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently, the cleansed vessel becomes a filled vessel. And when we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, there is produced the life of Jesus Christ. So, that it's not I that's living it at all. How am I living? Well, we're walking by faith and not by sight. And therefore, we've been crucified with Christ. We have already been, past tense. It's been accomplished with a present continuing result. We have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. That is, we live physically. Yet, we don't really live. Why? Because we've surrendered to the control of someone else. Therefore, it is his life. It is the life of Christ produced by the Spirit of God in and through us for the fulfilling of that which God purposes in our life. That's why Paul could say we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? that the excellency may be of God and not of ourselves God wants to produce through our lives that which is his work and as his work is produced through our lives that will glorify God so that there is no flesh that can glory in his presence but the spirit of God can accomplish God's work and I don't understand it fully no one ever will until we get to heaven, maybe we'll understand it a little better then. But the Spirit of God does the work. And when that is produced, it is gold, silver, and precious stones. And on the basis of the gold, silver, precious stones, the production from the life of the believer and the spirit-filled life, there is then reward for the believer. Why does he reward me for something he has done? That's grace. And grace is the key to the whole thing. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. That's the key to the whole thing. So, that's the upper room. We're going to come to the next week to the post-resurrection experiences very quickly. And and then um, the upper room again, the 10 days of waiting. And then we're going to go through chapters 1 and 2 just Go through there and show how the Spirit of God then was utilized in those early, in that early ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts. All right, so we'll see you next week. Let's pray right now. We thank you, Lord, for that which you have provided, that which you have given. We thank you, Lord, that we indeed are able to live, to live not in our own power and strength, but in the power and strength of the Spirit of God grant to us that we might have a real real growth in our own life as we come more and more to the realization of that position that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we will then yield constantly to this one who has been given to control us, as well as indwell us and seal us and and, uh, baptize us into the body and all of these other things that the Spirit of God accomplishes. Grant to us, Father, that we may yield more and more to him so that he might have full sway in our life. We'll give you the praise for it in Christ's precious name. Amen.